Good afternoon and welcome to the last lecture in our summer series narrating the 19th century new approaches. I'm Andreas Kestrigandi, director of the German Historical Institute. And it's a great pleasure to have you all here, despite of all the other events going on parallel. <laughs> um, just to remind you, we had invited four eminent scholars, two from Britain and two from Germany, who are presently engaged or have just finished writing a new history of either 19th century Germany or Britain or Europe. And we have asked them to tell us something about how they actually approached this task of writing uh, history of the 19th century in the 21st century are the old master narratives uh, which we all know for the 19th century such as nation building, empire building, modernization, emancipation. Are they still meaningful enough today to organize a history of the 19th century around such categories or can we find new aspects in the 19th century which speak to us today more directly and make a fresh look at this century more relevant for us today. We are very lucky to be able to welcome this evening one of the most prominent historians of British 19th century history, Professor Sir David Canadine. A uh, very warm welcome to you. He is, um, David Canadine has a truly transatlantic career, just to say, a few brief words, uh, actually he does not need very much introduction, but uh, because he is omnipresent in the history scene, uh, even though he um, divides his time between the United States and uh, Britain. He did his training in, in Cambridge and Oxford and lectured in Cambridge and then became um, professor of history, chair of history at Columbia University in 1988, only to return to Britain 10 years later in 1998 as the director of the Institute of Historical Research and Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother Professor of British History. In 2008 he went back to the United States and joined the history department at Princeton and looking at the 10-year intervals, uh, I wonder what's going to happen in 2018. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I think the return is already uh, sort of on the way because in 2014, uh, David Canadine was uh, appointed editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National uh, Biography, succeeding uh, uh, Lawrence Goldman, who became the new director of the Institute of historical research and he also took up a visiting professorship at Oxford University. David Cantillon has worked on many, many fields uh, of British history, uh, starting with important work on the history of British aristocracy. He uh, published uh, a lot on empire history, British history in the context of Empire, but he has also always uh, uh, published on actually how we do, how we write history, how we ought to write history. He has several publications on on actually history writing in the 20th century. History in our time is one of the titles. 1998. What is history now? Uh, 2002. 
Making History Now and Then, Discoveries, Controversies and Explorations, 2008, the right kind of history. So who else could be better reflect on how we retell, re-narrate the 19th century in the 21st century? A very warm welcome to you, David Canadine, and thank you very much for uh, the lecture. We are very much looking forward to it and uh, also to the discussion afterwards. Well, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's a huge pleasure to be here, and thank you all for feeling this is a better place to be than watching Germany playing Northern Ireland, is that right? Um, and I hope that won't turn out to have been a mistaken decision uh, on your part. <laughs> thank you also for your very kind words. Since I earned some of my living by uh, lecturing, um, I have become an unrivaled connoisseur of introductions to myself. Uh, this is not a fiercely contested for position. Um, and I've never forgotten the occasion when I was on the road with my biography of Andrew Mellon. I was in Kansas, and there was a dinner, and I had to speak afterwards. And the uh, person giving the introduction said, it's a huge pleasure to welcome David Canadine. He is the author of the greatest biography of Andrew Mellon ever written. And I rather preened myself at this point and thought this promise is well. Um, but then he rather sported by adding, it is, of course, the only biography of Andrew Mellon. <laughs> so thank you so much for not having said that. Uh, I'm terribly grateful. I ought to say, this is the first time um, I have actually talked about this book of mine um, on 19th century Britain. Um, and so you must bear with me if uh, this seems a rather unpolished piece, because the book is not yet finished, although it's much more nearly finished than not. Um, but I'm, as it were, too close up to it in a way to be able to remember what I thought I was doing when I said I would do it, if you see what I mean. Um, I ought also to say that when I signed the contract for this book, the 19th century was the one immediately before the one that we were then in. Um, so uh, there has been a considerable increase in historical distance, uh, as it were, on it since that time. Now, one might want to ask, indeed I've often asked myself, and I fear reviewers may make the same point, why do we need another history of 19th century Britain? After all, there is a long and illustrious pedigree of histories of 19th century Britain, beginning, for the sake of argument, with Halliday's wonderful, incomplete, multi-volume history, and Trevelyan's British history in the 19th century, and those two very fine and still well worth reading volumes in the original Oxford History of England uh, by uh, Sir Llewellyn Woodward and Sir Robert Ensor. Then, of course, there are the two books by Asa Briggs and Don Reed in the Longman series, which cover the same period. There's Norman Gash and Feuchtwanger in the Arnold series. There are the three books more recently to which, to which I shall return in the new Oxford History of England by Boyd Hilton, Theo Hoppen and Geoffrey Searle. And there are recent, relatively recent single volume attempts to do this by Norman McCord, Bill Rubinstein um, and also um, Thomas Cunningham. So there is a serious question in the light of this market, which it cannot be said is undersupplied uh, with histories of 19th century Britain, do we need any more? What is the case for having another go at this? And naturally, I have a vested interest in supposing that we do need another volume, since otherwise I wouldn't have written as much of it as I have. And what's the case that I could make for that? Well, there's a variety of things, I think, and, and these are points that lots of other people have made as well, so there's no particular originality here, but nevertheless, I think this might be of some interest. 
When I was starting out, which is a long time ago, the 19th century, 19th century English history was the century where most things were happening. Um, and during the 1950s and 60s, um, as people began to get into the archives in a way that previously they hadn't, it was the most exciting place to be, and that's partly, I suppose, why in the 1970s I became a historian of the 19th century myself. But I think it's fair to say that in the intervening period, the 19th century has just been overwhelmed and weighed down by the spectacular array of its own erudition. Um, the amount of material to read on the 19th century that's been published over the last 50 years and more is almost unmasterable by anybody. Um, and that has tended, I think, although it's hugely enhanced our knowledge in a whole variety of ways, it's also made it harder and harder to take any big and broad view of the whole thing because the whole thing is now so big. And also, I think it's been superseded for entirely understandable reasons as the most exciting bit of modern British history by the 20th century because the documents have become available more uh, rapidly than, in, than was the case with 19th century documents. And the 20th century is now, I think, the place where many people believe the most exciting work is being done. So here was a possible epigraph I thought of using for this book of mine, though in fact I won't. It's from my good friend Miles Taylor. The British 19th century has been in a state of suspended animation. It is time it was brought back to life. Now, I'm not altogether sure that's true, I ought to say. It seems to be it's been a state of, as it were, um, unprecedented overproduction in terms of scholarship rather than suspended animation. But the point I think that Mars is trying to get at there um, is that it is overwhelmed by its erudition. It is perhaps a point of some importance. There's a variety of other matters that I suppose these days we should be taking notice of. The rise of four nations history means that we have to try to write the history of the 19th century, either of Britain or of the United Kingdom. We need to sh show more attentiveness to England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And when Penguin asked me to um, become general editor of this new history of Britain in the 1990s, one of the things that they were particularly insistent on was that unlike the old Pelican history of England, this should indeed be the Penguin history of Britain. Um, and that was partly deriving from the fact that in the 1990s, devolution was, to put it mildly, high on the political agenda. We're all also told now that we have to integrate the history of Britain and that of the British Empire to a greater extent than ever before, although it's not in practice very easy to do. We are also, I think, constantly told that unlike the 1950s and 60s and 70s, Britain's claims to great power pretensions which lasted perhaps until then, are now finally over with the, the, the um, handing back of Hong Kong in 1997. We finally need to get over, as it were, the imperial phase of British history, and that, of course, is preeminently uh, the 19th century. We're also told we have to take account of the global history turn. Uh, we are all these days apparently supposed to be writing transnational history, uh, and we are therefore supposed to be thinking when we talk about Britain uh, with, in terms of its relations with the world and indeed the world beyond the British Empire. I'm also very struck by the thought, especially in the light of other events of this week, that one of the things that tends to get, out, get left out uh, either in the discourse of the new imperial history or with the priorities of global history is actually Britain and Europe. Um, and it seems to me that relations between Britain and Europe, especially in the 19th century, are actually a subject of huge uh, importance. I constantly, well, it's one of my regular and repeated refrains when people say to me, isn't Elgar a quintessentially English composer? Uh, and I say in reply, Elgar is a quintessentially German composer. 
And Elgar is indeed a quintessentially German composer because if you actually look at his own work, once he gets over writing oratorios, which are indeed a quintessentially English form, it seems to me of torture and boredom. But once, as it were, he gets over that and he's interested in symphonies and concertos, he sees himself very strongly in the Central European German tradition. And Elgar's works get far more sympathetic first performances in Germany uh, than, in fact, they do uh, here in England. So that notion of the connection between Britain and Europe in all sorts of ways, on all sorts of levels, um, and in particular, I would want to say, in this setting between Britain and Germany, seems to me to be hugely important and something that somehow gets left out. Global history does not appear to encompass Britain and Europe very often, and that doesn't seem to me to be at all a good idea. I also think it is fair to say that, so far as I know, and I think I have read all the potentially competing uh, alternatives, there isn't actually a single one-volume coherent narrative history of 19th century Britain, um, which may imply that it's actually impossible to do. Um, on the other hand, it might also imply it's worth having a go. The difficulty, of course, with trying to do that, well, there are many difficulties. It certainly needs to be in the plural, not least because uh, in order to write a one-volume history of 19th century Britain, you have to decide what to leave out, and you have to decide to leave out an awful lot. Um, and you also have to work out how to devise the appropriate expositional structure for what goes in. So it always seemed to me that one of the fun bits of being a historian is how you devise the appropriate expositional structure for the sort of problem you're engaging with and the sort of book you want to write. And I have always taken the view that one should never keep writing the same book, even though some of one's colleagues do, and that you should keep writing different books and devise different expositional structures for them. This makes me the despair of my publishers who keep telling me there's no canadine brand, they say, to which I reply, that's because I don't keep writing the same book. And so part of the fun of this project, um, as I think I want to say the fun I've had with most of the books I've written, is how to work out how to devise an appropriate structure to create the kind of book on 19th century Britain that I don't think anybody else has quite managed to carry off. The good news, of course, about this project is that there is a ton of material. There's no need to do any original research, um, and that, although I like doing original research, seems appropriate for this. Um, the bad news is um, that um, the books to work with are in some ways, I think, quite hard and quite difficult. And let me try to illustrate this with reference to the three new, or relatively new, still fairly new, Oxford History of England volumes. Boyd Hilton on 1783 to 1846, Theo Hoppen on 1846 to 86, and Jeff Searle on 1886 to 1918. As it happens, I know all of the authors, and although I don't know any of them closely, I'm certainly a fan and admirer of them all, and in certain ways of these books. And one of the ways in which I become more of an admirer is that when you're set to write a kind of survey, you begin to appreciate more than you might have done before how hard it is and to see what the merits and strengths are in other authors who've tried their hand at what is in some ways um, a similar thing. So the comments that I'm about to make, although in some ways critical, are nevertheless on the back of a general recognition that those are three very serious and significant and important books. Indeed, it's no exaggeration to say that they are in some ways, in some ways though not all, very much the briefing books which I've used in writing uh, this book of my own. Um, and in so doing, I am following um, a very distinguished precedent. When A.J.P. Taylor wrote his English History 1914-45, 
um, a scintillating piece of opinionated and narrative history. Um, already written by then was a rather wonderful book on almost the same period by C.L. Mallet. And when Taylor went to Oxford to talk about, or when Taylor in Oxford talked about his own English history, somebody said to him, Mr. Taylor, how did you manage to know so much? Where did you get all your information from? And he replied, I just looked it up in Mallet. <laughs> so that is one way, as it were, to proceed. So from my perspective, and of course it's not theirs, but it's the only perspective I've got, how do those three books look? And what are their strengths and interests and weaknesses? It seems to me they are very much quintessentially Oxford books. Uh, and their main focus is still almost overwhelmingly English history. Boyd, unsurprisingly, is of course particularly strong on theology and politics. Um, and if you want to read about that, it's all to be found there. Theo Hocken, as befits the fact that he is wearing another hat, a preeminent historian of Ireland, is very, very good and very, very strong on Anglo-Irish relations. And Jeff Searle, I think, heroically took on the task of doing the late 19th and early 20th century and the First World War as well. They are in some ways actually very different books. And if you become the editor of a series, one of the things you worry about is that although each of the books might be rather good, they don't really approach the topic or the problem in the same way. And that's certainly true of these three books, which are in many ways very different. Hilton, I think, doesn't really have a clear narrative structure. There's lots of back and forth and toing and froing, and he never quite works out how to resolve the contradictions and paradoxes and challenges of narrative versus analysis. It's rather disconcerting to be almost at the end of the book and we're back in the 1790s somehow and that doesn't seem to me quite to work. Hoppen I think has lots of wonderful insights as does Hilton but I think in the end it's a collection of essays. Some of them are very brilliant. The stuff on entrepreneurship and culture I think is terrifically good and there's a wonderful chapter where he looks at the Celtic fringe altogether but he doesn't really hang together as a book and Jeff Searles is a heroic attempt, as it were, to do everything for the late 19th, early 20th century. But he kind of gives the impression that he's just overwhelmed by it. And the First World War is somehow added on in a way that doesn't quite work. So from my perspective, although there's stacks of stuff in these books that is grist to my bill, and I do look things up in them all the time, like Taylor did with Mallet, from my perspective, on the whole, these are Little England books too much. Uh, there's not, although they're covering the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars at the beginning and the First World War at the end, there's not enough engagement with the broader world. There's not enough on England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And I do think the periodisation is rather eccentric, though all periodisations are, of course, to some degree arbitrary. And I think the problem is that the books cover such a short span of time, they never, in a sense, develop a sense of dynamism and momentum, even though much of what they're writing about is very dynamic and very momentous. They're also actually very hard to read. I mean, I've read all three of them from cover to cover several times. How many of you have read any of them from cover to cover? <laughs> Peter, you must do that. Yeah, good. Peter Mandler has read them all, so talk to him afterwards. <laughs> all that said, I cannot deny that those three books represent both a provocation and a challenge to someone in my position with the remit that I had. How can I accomplish in one volume the things I'm criticising them for having failed to have accomplished in three volumes? This is not, as it were, a good place necessarily to be starting. Now, one answer is that, of course, I'm trying to do something different. There's no point in setting out to beat them at their own game because they are terribly good at it for reasons I've already given. 
I'm trying to write a book which will be geographically more broad-ranging in terms of the four kingdoms of Britain and the world and cover a much longer span of time and do all that in a shorter compass. That's not uh, an easy thing to do, as I've discovered. But the way that I've tried to do this is by sequencing the chapters deliberately in a strictly chronological order. This is a very unfashionable thing to do nowadays. Um, and the Oxford history volumes, at least the first two, absolutely don't do that. But it does seem to me that one does need to have some sense that history does occur in a sequence of events over time. And books that don't convey that seem to me, whatever else they may be doing very well, um, to be kind of missing something that we're supposed to do. So I'm trying to write um, a narrative chronological account of this extraordinarily momentous century, uh, doing more things in some ways but less things in others, um, and in a, broad, in a shorter compass than uh, it took Boyd and Theo Hoppen and Jeff Searle three volumes to do. So, in the light of all of that, um, to the book itself. I have provisionally called it, though in the end the title will be decided by the marketing department of Penguin Books because they are the people who decide all these things nowadays. It's provisionally called At the Summit of the World, question mark, 1800 to 1906. And it's called that, or at least I hope it will be called that, although I'm told that the marketing department don't like this title. It's called this, or I hope it will be called this, partly because by various criteria, economic, social, uh, political, uh, Britain was the most successful 19th century nation, at least for quite a lot of the 19th century. And it was certainly Britain's century of world dominance. Um, if it was anybody's, the 19th century, uh, the 19th century belonged to Britain. So it seems the appropriate title, at the summit of the world. Though it's flagging up Britain in an international and global context rather than necessarily what's going on in Britain itself. Although, as I say, it's about success, which is as much domestic as international. And indeed, the domestic success is the essential precondition for that. But what I'm also struck by is that that dominance and that success, such as they were, often seem more convincing in retrospect than it did to contemporaries at the time. And much of what was going on at the time, as distinct from what's been made of it later, was very fragile and often, I think, uncertain and incomprehensible to contemporaries who had to live through it, just as we don't fully understand what's going on now. And one of the things I wanted to try to do in the book was to convey the sense that how it looks in retrospect and how it seemed at the time isn't necessarily the same thing. So, it was a successful economy and it was a successful society, but there were many vicissitudes along the way and people did not always think that it was working or that it was stable. It was, by various criteria for much of the 19th century, the greatest power in the world, but there were reverses, there were disasters, and in lots of ways, its position as the greatest power in the world was a fluke. Uh, to do with the fact that Europe uh, had not yet got its act together, at least not until the late 19th century. America had the Civil War, and Britain, in a sense, in the mid-Victorian period in particular, had no rivals. Once Britain started having rivals, it didn't look anything like as good. So hence the question mark in the title, at the summit of the world, question mark. Because it seems to me that nothing in the 19th century for Britain was ever quite as it seemed. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping to explore in this book. It's also fair to say that the dates are a bit unusual, not hugely, but a bit. I did not want to do another book, uh, because so many other books have done this, from 1815 to 1914. That's, as it were, the standard century. Um, and I felt it would be rather interesting to try something else. 
And so my dates are 1800 to 1906. And I've chosen those, well, in particular the first one, <clears throat> not just because it would be nice to have different dates, although I think it would, but because it implies, I think, a different dynamic to the book than if you start in 1815. Because I'm beginning, not with Waterloo, but with the Act of Union with Ireland. And that, of course, signals the fact that if we are to make sense of 19th century Britain, the 19th century United Kingdom, then relations between Great Britain and Ireland, they're not the only show in town, but they are absolutely crucial. In a different way from how that was true before, and in a different way on the whole from how it's true after 1922. And I thought beginning with the Act of Union was a rather interesting place uh, to start. And I wanted to end with the overturning of a certain vision of Tory England, and to convey both the sense of both optimism and anxiety, an anxiety which has a particular articulation, I think, in 1905 to 1906, just as it has many other articulations earlier on. So I begin the book with an Act of Parliament, and I end it with a general election. And somehow I think that's a more interesting way to think about 19th century Britain, or at least it's another way to think about 19th century Britain, than to start uh, with the Battle of Waterloo and to end with the outbreak of the First World War. How does Britain's history, broadly conceived, look if you run it that way? So, how does this book actually work? What I've tried to do... <clears throat> There are 11 substantive chapters to this book, uh, most of which are now fairly well on, topped and tailed by a prologue and an epilogue. And what I've tried to do, I'm back to the point about how you devise the expositional structure to help you accomplish the thing you're trying to do. What I've done in each case, and there is of course an element of artificiality about this, but however one does this, there's bound to be an element of artificiality about it. Each of the substantive 11 chapters begins and ends with a political episode or its equivalent. Um, at the beginning of the span of time it's covering and then at the end of the span of time it's covering. And then in between, the substance of each chapter uh, is three or four sections of, as it were, parallel narrative, trying to deal with Britain and the world, the state of the nation, the vicissitudes of politics and culture as broadly conceived, all the way from uh, Turner to Darwin. And so there's a set of sub-themes that run through each chapter. So the narrative advances on a variety of fronts and not quite at the same time, because books don't work like that, but within the chronological bounds of each particular chapter. And as far as I know, nobody of late has actually tried that. Uh, that may be because it can't done, but I've had a go. What I've also tried to do to make the book, I think, more fun and more flexible and more interesting is not to make a fetish of these categories or of the ranking of these categories within each chapter. There was a much earlier series, which I've not mentioned here, that did a history of England, um, and it, was, it had a kind of remorselessly rigid structure, so that each chapter began with narrative of events, then there was politics and government, then there was economy and society, and then there was something called the world. And each chapter, as it went through, examined these themes in precisely that rigid order. And the result is a book which, in the end, I think, or a series of books which don't quite work. What I've tried to do is to mix this up and to have different rankings and mixtures of these themes chapter by chapter, uh, which I think is rather fun. And again, I'm not sure anybody's ever tried that. So, if you could bear with me, I'm now going to tell you a bit about what the substance of the book is, but be assured this will be a very brief summary uh, indeed. Um, I've written a prologue, which will, of course, be completely rewritten by the time I've really settled on the book, but there are one or two bits in here which might be of interest. 
As Charles Dickens pointed out in a phrase which soon acquired much broader application than he ever intended, the 19th century was for Britain both the best of the times and the worst of times, while for many ordinary people it was often something very much in between as well. It was an era of unprecedented national prosperity and global greatness, but also of unexampled domestic misery and squalor and of imperial aggression and acquisitiveness. It was the century of Trafalgar, Waterloo, the Great Exhibition, the Pax Britannica and the Diamond Jubilee, but also of Peterloo, the Hungry Forties, the Irish Potato Famine, the Indian Mutiny, the Scramble for Africa and the Boer War. It was also a time when many of the things that we take for granted today first came into being. Among them stamps, railways, newspapers, photographs, bicycles, footballs, telephones, sewers, nurses, policemen, department stores, museums and galleries, red brick universities, restaurants, detective novels, bacon and egg, golf, the National Trust and the old school tie. <laughs> In all these ways, 19th century Britain anticipated our own world and our own times. And there are many residues and survivals of the way they lived then that still form a substantial element and constituent part of the way we live now. But although it is close enough to our own day to be in many respects instantly recognisable and comfortingly familiar, the British experience between the 1800s and the 1900s is in other ways dissimilar, unlike, distant and remote, and both difficult to understand and not always easy to like. From one perspective, it was an era of national greatness, international prowess and imperial self-confidence, which for us now, in the much-diminished post-great power country that is contemporary Britain, is experientially unknowable and imaginatively all but irrecoverable. It was a time of widely accepted religious faith and of a strict moral code, which to those of a more secular mindset may today seem baffling and incomprehensible, but to those of a more pietistic inclination may have been a better world than ours. It was a century of bold and continuous constitutional experimentation, locally, nationally and imperially, the like of which has not been witnessed since. It was a century that saw the creation and accumulation of wealth in prodigious and unprecedented abundance on the basis of heavy industries and financial services that led the world in ways that are in our own diminished and post-industrial times, again, virtually unimaginable. It saw towns and cities such as Manchester, Leeds and Birmingham reach the zenith of their fame, freedom, resources, independence and influence by comparison with which today's urban jurisdictions are demoralised and dependent on handouts from central government. And it saw the construction, not just in Britain, but around the world by British and imperial companies, of canals and railways, houses and factories, harbours and bridges, dams and irrigation schemes, ships and underwater telegraphs, all built with a vigour, energy and a dynamism which the faint-hearted 21st century cannot rival. How long is it going to take to do um, the, the northern powerhouse... HS2, 25 years. Britain got an entire railway system in one decade, the 1840s. Yet these were not the only ways in which 19th century Britain was unlike our contemporary world. For while in some ways it may now seem to have been a greater place, a greater nation and a greater power than in our own lesser and diminished times, in other ways it was different in its manifest inferiority and deplorable unlikeness. It was, for example, a society which, until the early 1830s, tolerated slavery across the British Empire and the employment of children in factories and down the mines at home, and where, 50 years later, there were 80,000 prostitutes on the streets of London, and where one-third of the inhabitants of the greatest city on the globe were living in poverty. 19th century Britain was also a society where life expectancy was scarcely half of what it is today, 
where most people received only a minimal education and where state pensions and national health service and antibiotics and anaesthetics were all but unknown. It was a society where women were legally subordinate to men, where homosexuality became a crime and where divorce was difficult to obtain and almost invariably spelt social disgrace even if you were the innocent party. It was a society where there was a growing inequality between the rich and the poor, which assumed the majority of people were unfitted for the vote, and which took it for granted that those with white skins were generally, though not invariably, superior to people of colour. Thus regarded, 19th century Britain was not so much a place of great accomplishments and wholesome values to which we should aspire to return, as of course Margaret Thatcher constantly urged us to do, Rather, it was a place of widespread vices and flawed accomplishments from which we should be glad we have eventually escaped. Narrow, greedy, hypocritical, snobbish, repressed, vulgar, uncaring, complacent, bigoted, intolerant, aggressive, and jingoistic. I'm trying here to be even-handed, uh, <laughs> which is actually quite difficult. Here, then, lie both the many challenges and the multifarious opportunities in any attempt at a new treatment of 19th century Britain. To describe with equal force and conviction the elements of sameness and similarity, and also the elements of strangeness and surprise. To evoke the energy, the talents, the achievements, the optimism, the excitement, the sense of limitless possibilities, while also describing unflinchingly the darker sides of life. And to do full justice to the global reach of the history that 19th century Britons made without neglecting what was happening at home. In short, the challenge is that of trying both to understand the greater Britain of the 19th century on its own terms, while also setting it in the very different perspective which our early 20th century vantage point in many ways affords. I've got two quotations here which I shall kind of massage, but they seem to me helpful. Tristram Hunt, the 19th century was a terrible, fascinating and creative age, one that deserves greater appreciation than the 20th century ever provided. That's a bit tendentious, but he has got a point. And here, as it were, also some words of John Carey. One of history's most important tasks is to bring home to us how keenly, honestly, and painfully past generations pursued aims that now seem to us wrong or disgraceful. It's easy and on occasions appropriate to condemn 19th century Britain for being, among other things, elitist, classist, racist, imperialist, and misogynist. Yet they also believed, and not wholly without good cause, that they were the most advanced and civilized nation in the world. And trying to explain that and resolve those complications and paradoxes is what I confidently wrote at the end of this prologue, before I've written anything else, what this book will do. Well, I can't pretend to have done as well with that as I would like, but I have tried in that prologue to set up what seemed to me to be the interesting ways of thinking about 19th century British history, or the history of 19th century Britain now. These do seem to me, in a sense, to be a set of questions that, as it were, were not the questions uh, for Trevelyan or Alivy or Asa Briggs uh, or Robert Ensor. But I do think they are the questions now, or at least I think they're an interesting set of questions to try to write a book around. So, that's the prologue. Don't worry, I don't propose to read anything more out. Not because it isn't written, but because we all want to drink in about uh, 40 minutes' time. And so I want to get on because I am interested to hear questions. So the prologue, as it was, will attempt to set things up. And then chapter one is called A Kingdom United, question mark, 1800 to 1802. One thing I was terribly anxious to avoid in the first chapter, which so many surveys do, is they give you a survey of social structure. And it's always 
very important but incredibly boring. Uh, you want to get into the story, the narrative, what's going on, instead of being told that there are 5,000 people who own large numbers of great estates. I mean, I'm rather interested in those sort of people, but it's not a way of drawing the reader in, uh, as it were, to what you want the book to be about. So I haven't done my version of Macaulay's third chapter, as it were, which sets out a survey, or at least I've tried to do it in a way that isn't obvious, but I'm now about to tell you how I've done it, so I suppose it will be obvious. So the chapter begins, uh, the chapter is called A Kingdom United, 1800 to 1802, and as I've said, it begins with the high politics, the parliamentary drama of the act of union between uh, Great Britain and Ireland. And that's how the book starts off, which, since that's the, the timing of the book, that's to say I want to begin in 1800, seems absolutely right. And what the chapter then segues into is in part explaining why this act of union happened, and that, of course, in part enables me to fill in the backstory of the first part of the Anglo-French Wars, the strategic anxieties resulting from that. And it also enables me to set up, of course, one of the most important issues over the next 30 years, that is the unfinished business of the Act of Union with Ireland, namely Catholic emancipation. The original deal that Pitt the Younger wanted was the Act of Union with Ireland, getting rid of the Irish Parliament, but giving Irish Catholics the vote. And George III won't let that happen. And there's an awful lot of unfinished business as a result of that. That enables me to segue, since George III does get quite a lot of attention here, into um, what I hope is not a kind of boring and uninteresting survey of monarchy, government, parties and the electorate. Uh, and then into social structure, and then a big survey which helps remind us that, of course, King George III was also Elector of Hanover. And that enables me then to deal with a whole variety of aspects of Britain's relations with Europe and with the wider world. Um, and in particular with France as well, post-1793. And then the chapter is tied together at the end with the Treaty of Amiens in 1801 um, and the brief period of peace that results. So that's, I hope, a sort of gift-wrapped chapter, which I think covers um, rather interestingly, and in a way I've not read anybody else doing, um, a set of issues which need to be got into the first chapter, but which avoid what always seems to me the very dispiriting, here is a survey of the social structure of this country, which always seems to me to turn people off. And it's an attempt to draw the reader in and say, this is the big stuff that's beginning to happen, um, but you also do need to know one or two bits of the backstory um, and the social structure and Britain's relation with the world. One of the happy aspects, as it were, at the beginning at this point is, of course, that Britain's relations with the world in general and Europe in particular uh, are absolutely crucial. So that's, as it were, how that chapter um, works. Uh, the second chapter is called Britannia Resurgens, 1802 to 1815. And what I'm doing here, of course, is the, the chapter is driven not by the high political narrative, uh, but, of course, by the international narrative of engagement uh, with war in Europe um, and elsewhere. And it begins uh, with the brief period of peace, um, when lots of Brits go over to France because they actually like France. It's got lots of culture and rather good restaurants and many of them go over in this brief period of peace after the Treaty of Amiens and some of them indeed get caught there when war breaks out again, among them Fanny Burney. There is then a big section called a Long Hard War and it is essentially about the war and the way I've tried to do this is to show, which it's not difficult to do because it's what most people these days seem to think, that for Britain it really kind of goes very badly until about 1812. 
Um, and it really isn't clear that the British are going to win. This attempt constantly to put together continental coalitions with the British finance just don't work. And although Trafalgar means that Britain is preeminent on the sea, Napoleon, of course, is preeminent on the land. And the breaking of that strategic stalemate, um, in part because of the Duke of Wellington as he becomes in Spain, but above all, of course, with the invasion of Russia, it's in the east that uh, Napoleon is defeated, just as, of course, 100 years later, it's in the east that Hitler is defeated. So I've tried to look um, at the long, hard war um, certainly from the British perspective, but also perhaps in a more geopolitical perspective than on the whole it gets treated as uh, in surveys of this period. Then there's a, chat, a section called the politics of patriotism, which is indeed about the high politics of this period. There's a section called the sinews of war and the price of victory, which is about the British economy, about the Industrial Revolution, and a lot about popular protest. And then the chapter is tied together uh, with a short section called A Final Tainted Triumph. And that's 1814, when it looks as though the war is over, and is, of course, the centenary of the Hanoverian monarchy. And then, of course, it's 1815 and the Hundred Days, um, and Wellington and Waterloo. And, of course, as we have constantly been told in this time of referendum, not least by the current Duke of Wellington, most of the army that the Duke of Wellington commands at Waterloo is not British. So that's how that chapter's going to work. Well, at least it's how it looks as though it's working. The next chapter, I'm sorry to kind of go through all this in a slightly laundry list way. I mean, if you're not interested, I could skip to chapter nine and move on. But can I keep going for a bit? Is that all right? Okay, good. Good. Um, I hope you're not recording this, because I should be very distressed to find a, you know, a book in a shop <laughs> in a few weeks' time, which is laid out like this. I should be very, very distressed. Um, the third chapter is called Great Power, Great Vicissitudes, 1815 to 29. And it begins with another take on 1815, which is the passing of the Corn Laws. Um, a story which can be read in a variety of ways, but one of the ways it's read is that this is a blatant piece of self-interested class legislation by the landowners, and it produces a lot of annoyance and protest. And then again, as with the previous chapter, the, the first substantive section is called The Nation and the World, and it's about the nature of the British Empire and Britain's connections with other parts of the world in the aftermath of having done so well, apparently, um, out of the Napoleonic Wars. Britain is the greatest power in the world, a huge military presence by this time in India, and it's all about that. I've then got a, chapter, a section called Ideas and Beliefs and Disenchantment, and that's about belief systems and theology. That's all, of course, lifted from Boyd Hilton. Um, and a piece about protest. And it's an attempt to get into both the theological and intellectual mindset of people at this time, um, and also to explain why, during this period, there was so much discontent and popular protest. And so I've relegated to the end of this chapter, in terms of substantive sections, the high political narrative. And there's a section then called Liberal Toryism, colon, in action, that means doing nothing, and in action, that means doing something. And it's about, as it were, the Liberal Tories' response to all of this, both internationally and uh, domestically. And I think to set it up that way, which might seem slightly back to front, uh, seems to me to kind of work. And then the final short section, again tying it all together, is called, rather apocalyptically, The Crisis Begins. And that's about the disintegration of Liberal Toryism in the aftermath of uh, Lord Liverpool becoming incapacitated and the advent of the Duke of Wellington as Prime Minister. 
So again, as with the previous chapter, what I'm trying to do here is, within each chapter, to have parallel narratives all moving forward, as it were, simultaneously, topped and tailed in such a way as to make the chapter cohere and work. Uh, chapter 4, um, no surprises for the title here, the iconoclastic years 1829 to 41. And this begins, the, the opening vignette here is the passing of Catholic emancipation. That's the obvious place to start. That's been set up, in a sense, at the end of the previous chapter. And this is a rather more predictable, predictably structured chapter because, of course, the first big section is called the Great Reforming Act, 1830 to 1832, which remains, in my view, one of the great parliamentary dramas and historical watersheds uh, in modern British history. Then I've got a, a, a section slightly ridiculously called Whigs in Clover, question mark. Um, and that's about what the Whigs get up to in the 1840s in the aftermath of the passing of the Great Reform Act. Then there is a section um, on economic vicissitudes and popular discontent. And in this chapter, uh, I put um, engaging with the world as the final big section. So I inverted the ordering compared to the two previous chapters, just in the hope of keeping the readers on their toes, or at least keeping them awake. And in suggesting, which I think it's worth trying to do, that the drivers to different periods are not necessarily the same thing. And then there's a short final section called Alienation and Disenchantment, and that's Tory rage at Catholic Emancipation of the Great Reform Act. It's Walter Scott, it's the Oxford Movement, it's Young England, it's Pugin, and the timing is, of course, perfect. It's about the burning down of the Palace of Westminster and its reconstruction as this Gothic revival fantasy. So that gets us quite a way along. Chapter 5, um, we're halfway almost, so um, be encouraged here. Chapter 5 is, again, rather predictably called The Hungry Forties, 1841 to 1848, and it begins, again, it's set up in this way, with the revival of the Tory party under Peel, who, of course, rejects much of this obscurantist Toryism associated with Young England and the Oxford Movement and Walter Scott. And, as it were, I get the Tories into power at the end of this opening section with the 1841 election. So that's, as it were, how it gets started. And then there is, I suppose predictably, but again it seems to me rightly, a big section on the condition of the United Kingdom. Economic vicissitudes, the condition of England literature, uh, the, uh, the anti-Corn Law League, uh, and of course the Irish potato famine. Um, and I think one cannot write the history of the 1840s without giving serious attention to the Irish potato famine. And that, as it were, sets up the next section, which is Peel's premiership. How does he cope with all of this? What's he doing? What's he up to? Why does he repeal the Corn Laws? And is it really the case that this has any effect on the Irish potato famine at all? And then there is a section on the British Empire and the British world, emigration, uh, general reluctance to annex colonies, relations with America and with France, um, India and Afghanistan, and settlers uh, in uh, the Antipodes and in South. Africa. Um, a huge issue, actually, and rarely adequately integrated, it seems to me, into uh, these other aspects of the 1840s in a way that I've tried to do. And the very final tying together section is called Famine and Fear. Uh, it's Russell's administration, it's the economic downturn of 1848, and it's the troubles in particular in the British Empire in 1848, much derived from the work of Miles Taylor. So this is, as it were, the 1830s is momentous for reform and change. The 1840s seems momentous because things don't quite seem to be working. 
Then there is a chapter, chapter 6, which is called Half-Time Great Exhibition, 1849-52. to This is shamelessly lifted from A.J.P. Taylor, again in his book English History, 1914-45. Uh, to He has a chapter called something like 1929 Half-Time. And it's a way of getting in all the things you can't fit in elsewhere. Although in this particular case, there's a very good reason for doing it in addition to that. Because, of course, this is the Great Exhibition, the most significant public event uh, in Britain between the celebrations for Waterloo and Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. And this chapter begins with Palmerston and Don Pacifico. Uh, you'll all remember that his, Palmerston's peroration uh, in the Don Pacifico debate is to say two things. Britain is full of immensely contented people and it has a social structure whereby everybody can rise up in the scale. And secondly, uh, we can defend anybody anywhere in the world who's a Brit if they're badly treated by foreigners. And those are the two things with which Palmerston famously ends that Don Pacifico speech. It seems to me that both of them are actually completely wrong. That is to say, the social structure on the basis of the story I will thus far have told certainly isn't this kind of utopian, panglossian version that Palmerston talks about. And there are real limits to Britain's capacity to project power overseas, even in the century of Britain's dominance. Uh, so that, I thought, sets things up in an appropriately, maybe we should think about this rather carefully sort of way. There is then a kind of survey of Britain at mid-century, exploring a variety of paradoxes that it's the first industrial nation, the workshop of the world, and yet it's not actually all that industrialised at all. It's a nation that likes to think of itself as being a very religious nation, but the religious census of exactly this time doesn't necessarily reinforce that view. Uh, it is a society where the general level of literacy is very low, but where high culture, literary culture, are in fact of very high quality indeed. So there's a set of sort of paradoxes to play with there. Uh, and then after that, there is a section called The Politics and Limitations of Global Hegemony, which tries to engage with some of the arguments that have recently been made that mid-Victorian Britain is indeed an economic powerhouse, which I'm not sure is altogether true. And whether it's true or not, spending on defence, spending on the navy, spending on imperial administration is very low. The British want an empire and a navy run and financed on a shoestring because they're trying to economise in the aftermath of the huge amounts of expenditure at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And having, as it were, done all that, then there is a section called Exhibiting the Nation Encompassing the Globe, which is actually on the Great Exhibition of 1851, both in terms of how it got going, who was on it, Crystal Palace and all that, and also the ambiguities, in fact, of uh, the Great Exhibition. Is it, as some people claim then and more have claimed since, a celebration of the fact that Britain is indeed the preeminent uh, nation in the world, whose social stability is the envy of everywhere, whose economic prosperity and innovation is unmatched by anyone else, and who can indeed, in Palmerston's notion, project its power anywhere? Or is it actually a nation whose levels of industrial desire are very bad, uh, and which is already being caught up uh, by other nations which lead, might lead one to think that the future doesn't look as bright as optimists might think. And then that chapter is tied together by a brief final bit called Aftermath and Aftershocks, the end of the Great Exhibition, and an attempt to capture, I mean it is a, of course, as it were, just an actuarial coincidence, but there's a very huge, strong sense in 1849-50-51 of a passing of generations. Uh, that period sees the death of Wordsworth, Turner, Pugin and Wellington, among others. Uh, and there is a very strong sense that um, the future doesn't necessarily look all that good because these great men have gone. 
Um, and of course, and as the next chapter is about to show, there is very good reason for being a bit worried about the future. So then, the, as it were, the story picks up again um, in a chapter rather clumsily at the moment called Equipoise and Hegemony, Anxiety and Doubt. I should have to do better than that. Uh, 1852 to 65. And it sets up, um, again, with the high political narrative of Derby's brief Tory government. And it does look at the extraordinary characteristics, if that's the right word, um, of uh, politics during this period when party loyalties are rather uh, weak, when the crown to some degree can intervene uh, more than it used to do, and when everybody's wondering where Gladstone is going to end up. He ceased to be a Tory, where's he going? And then the next section is the limits to international hegemony and the interlinked international crises in which Britain gets caught up with varying degrees of involvement, the Taiping Rebellion, uh, the American Civil War, and above all, of course, the Crimea and the Indian Mutiny, uh, as it once used to be called. The most significant threat uh, which Britain faces uh, to its world position uh, in the whole of the 19th century, and taken together with the Crimea, must engender some degree of doubt about whether indeed Britain was at the summit of the world. The Crimea is a total cock-up, um, and the Indian mutiny comes very close uh, to being a defeat for the British. So if this is a nation at the summit of the world, what does th these episodes tell us about that? And then I have a section which at the moment is called Material Comforts, Mental Perturbations. Um, and it's about what people claim, notwithstanding these, economic, these international problems, was a period of unprecedented prosperity, and there's some truth in that. It's also, of course, the world of Samuel Smiles and Herbert Spencer and John Stuart Mill. Above all, of course, it's the world of Darwin and the origin of the species, which comes out in 1859. Also interesting, lots of rather important books come out in 1859, another one being, of course, George Eliot's first novel, um, Adam Bede. Uh, it's also, of course, rather interesting that Isambard Kingdom Brunel dies in 1859, and one of the points that none of the people who write about Isambard Kingdom Brunel seem to have noticed is that, of course, the scheme for the Great Eastern, that last and most implausible of the ventures that Brunel gets associated with, that huge ship, the Leviathan, complete with paddle wheels and screw propellers and goodness knows what, the way that Brunel sold that was to say, if there's another mutiny in India, we need a very big ship to get the troops from Britain to India as fast as possible. Um, which is, of course, not probably a good idea since it took a long time. But nobody has ever quite put together Isambard Kingdom, Brunel, the Great Eastern, and the Indian Mutiny. And then it ends with the Governor R controversy in Jamaica in 1865, over which the intelligentsia of London, about whom I'm also writing in that penultimate section, are completely split uh, from top to bottom. Then we come, um, I'm getting on now, so um, we're almost in double figures here and we'll soon be at the end. The next chapter at the moment, again rather predictably, is called Leaping in the Dark, 1865 to 1880. And it begins with the crisis over the passing of the Second Reform Act from 1865 to 1867. And off the back of that, I think unavoidably, and I think also properly and positively, the first big section is Liberal Zenith Conservative Comeback, and that, of course, is Gladstone and Disraeli. I then want to do a, a, a section which I haven't yet done, which in homage to various of my former friends and mentors and colleagues would probably be called Ideas and Institutions of Victorian Britain. And I want to talk there about a variety of subjects, one of which certainly ought to be marriage and the position of women. 
Um, and then I want to look and have looked, and this is written, at internationalism versus imperialism, the allegedly two different versions of Britain's relation to the world offered by Gladstone and offered by Disraeli, which turn out on closer inspection to be more similar than you might expect. And then that chapter will be tied together by the decline and fall of Beaconsfieldism from 1878 on, the imperial reverses at the end of Disraeli's time in office, the economic downturn ushering in the Great Depression, as it was then called, and the general election of 1880 in which Disraeli is defeated and Gladstone, uh, as it were, appears to be destined to be Prime Minister again. Uh, chapter 9, we really are now well on the way, um, is called Disintegration Threatened and Diverted, 1880-1895. And it begins with Gladstone's return uh, as Prime Minister, uh, once again uh, to Queen Victoria's rage and dismay uh, in 1880. And what I'm then working on, this isn't fully finished yet, is some attempt to track and capture and explain the shift in mood, beginning with the economic downturn at the end of Disraeli's time in power, which becomes much more intensified as the 1880s unfold. And this, of course, it's in this period that Lord Salisbury famously writes this article called Disintegration, which says that everything is on the skids. And I want to try to look in that section at the state of Britain, at all these raw commissions that come out in the late 1880s, suggesting that housing isn't good, and at Booth's Survey of Life and Labour in London, which suggests that a third of people are in poverty, at Jack the Ripper, and all of that. And then I want to look at the impact of the Great Depression in more specific economic terms, at the rise of trade unions, and at the land war in Ireland. This is a hugely cataclysmic, I think, set of changes, and as it were, discoveries, and I think it's a great blow to such Victorian self-confidence as there had previously been. Off the back of that, the next section is then called the turn to the right. One of the things that is interesting about British politics is that in terms of economic downturn, politics go to the right. It's partly because there's a divided left, but there's more to it than that. But this is all about Ireland, home rule, the liberal split, and Lord Salisbury, who does see his job as being to avert uh, disintegration. And then, of course, uh, off the back of all of that, new imperialisms for old, this extraordinary period of the 1880s and early 1890s, uh, when, as Salisbury says, everybody is obsessed with Africa. Nobody was concerned about Africa 20 years ago. Uh, Egypt, Khartoum, the partition of Africa, uh, Sir John Seeley's the expansion of England. All of them, all these people running <coughs> the colonial office and the foreign office are reluctant imperialists, but it happens anyway. And that chapter is tied together uh, with a short brief period called Exit Gladstone, Exit Liberals, 1892 to 94, and it's about exactly that. Gladstone's attempt to carry a second home rule bill, which doesn't work, and the crushing defeat of the Liberals in 1894. And then the final chapter, chapter 10, uh, well, no, there's one more, but it's the final narrative chapter covering a, lo a longish span, is called Jubilation, War and Recessional, 1895 to 1905. Uh, Salisbury, uh, as it were, I get Salisbury back in power at the beginning. And then we go back to the driver of the story being foreign affairs. The first major section is called Weary Titans Waging War. And this is, of course, about the foreign and imperial policies of Salisbury and of Chamberlain, and about the contrast between the enormous sense of pride and jingoism and imperial hubris, which was the popular mood of the time, and the real worries that Salisbury has that everything's always disintegrating, and that Chamberlain has that unless he can consolidate the empire, things aren't looking good. And I explore all that through um, the Diamond Jubilee, uh, the South African War, um, and the end of splendid isolation as Britain comes to accommodation 
uh, with Japan, the United States, Russia, and with France. And then, after that, um, I'm going to look at the politics. Unionist hegemony, the Tories in charge, the Hotel Cecil, how do they treat Ireland? Does coercion and conciliation work during this period? How different uh, is it? They have a very different take on what to do about Ireland than Gladstone did. And then I want to do a section which I haven't yet done called something like Civic Progress National Anxieties, which will do town halls and trams and music halls and orchestras and red brick universities, but it will also do uh, the revelations that come out of the Boer War about the fact that many people in Britain are undernourished, underheight, undereducated, and this is supposed to be the most sophisticated and successful nation in the world. So what's going on there? And then that chapter is tied together at the end with a short section called Tories, Tariffs and Travails, and it traces the divisions in the Tory party from 1903 to Campbell Bannerman taking office in November 1905. And then the very final chapter, which balances, as it were, the opening chapter on the Act of Union, is called Electoral Landslide 1905-6. to It begins with the Liberals being in office, um, in late 1905, and what, as it were, do they do? What are their hopes, fears, and aspirations? And then I shall try to do, this I haven't yet done, a balancing set of sections to those with which the book begins on the state of the nation, um, on the state of the empire, Britain and the world, and in particular, I think, and this will cause a lot of offence for those who claim that Britain is the world's best democracy, I shall want to look at the fact that one of the themes in the later part of the 19th century, it seems to me, is that whereas earlier on Britain had been very experimental in changing its constitution frequently and could rightly claim to be more democratic than most other nations in Europe, by the end of the 19th and early 20th century, that of course is not true. Um, and there's a kind of hardening of the constitutional arteries somehow in the late 19th and early 20th century that I want to talk about. And then that chapter will end with the electoral campaign and the Liberals' victory. So, finally, there has to be an epilogue to balance the prologue, just as uh, chapter 11 will balance chapter 1. And the epilogue, I think, will, be, will play with the following ideas. 1905 is, of course, the centenary of Trafalgar, among many other things. And it seems to me there are awkwardnesses and anxieties about that, because, of course, by this time, France is the ally. So that's a bit awkward, uh, to put it mildly. And, of course, it also speaks to anxieties about the British Navy no longer ruling the waves as much as it did because of what the Kaiser's up to. So that would be a good way to play with that set of concerns. And then I shall briefly fast forward, of course, to the centenary of Waterloo in 1915, which has even more awkwardnesses and anxieties because the Allies, that's to say the Germans, are now the enemies, and the enemies, that's to say the French, are now the friends. And then I suppose I shall have to say something about this curious way in which 20th century Britain was haunted, as I think it was, at least the bit of it that I lived in certainly was, was haunted by what was in many ways a misconceived notion of Britain's 19th century greatness, which took it to be permanent and immutable and utterly robustly based, whereas actually, as I hope this book will show, it was really none of those things at all. It might look like that looking backwards, it certainly wasn't like that living it forwards. But this sense of Britain being haunted by the 19th century comes out especially in the First World War. What Britain wants in the First World War is Nelson and Trafalgar, and what they get is Jellicoe and Jutland. And what they also want in the First World War is Wellington and Waterloo, and what they get is Hague and the Somme. And this sense that somehow we can't do it like we used to becomes a sort of pervasive British mindset um, for much of the 20th century. It seems to me, the 20th, for many people in Britain in the 20th century, they were haunted by, their, by Britain's failure to match up to what Britain had done in the 19th century. 
which seems to me to be something that needs investigating because it was what a lot of people thought, although I think empirically in many ways it's not true. Whereas now we appear to live in the world, apart from some of the most extreme Brexit people, where actually it's fully recognised that Britain cannot and should not try to meet up to what happened in the 19th century, and we should be glad we've got beyond it. And I think those different views are, in some senses, the cultural legacy of the 19th century that I've tried to do here. So that's kind of where I am with this book. I'm very struck also, and it's a point I shall want to make somewhere along the way, what, I've tried, what I shall try to do, or what I hope, as it were, implicitly I shall do through the book, but will again need to make more explicit at the end, is to try to explain this very interesting paradox that the Victorians did have enormous energy and ambition, and in some ways confidence, and yet in lots of other ways they were kind of riding tigers to destinations which they didn't know, and really didn't understand what was going on, and really didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I think it's a salutary reminder that any politician who claims that they do know what they're doing should be very seriously questioned. <laughs> so that's where I kind of am with this. The only uh, the final point I think I'd make is that insofar as I have got into my stride on this, and I do think that what I've tried to set out here is doable. Most of it has been done. Nobody else has done it like this. And while one conclusion ought to be that means it can't be done and shouldn't be done, I'm rather of the opposite view that that's all the more reason for trying to make it happen. But I would want to say as a matter of, as it were, um, recollection that it wasn't until I'd got to the Great Exhibition that I sort of began to have an inkling that this would work. Um, and I'm very anxious to take questions and comments, but I would be very distressed if you now told me that that inkling is wrong. Thank you very much.